So today's reading comes from the New Testament. It is in your pew Bibles on page 177. Uh, We're reading Colossians um, 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers of power, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by, the making, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Fitting in this season as we begin confirmation, Carrie and I are preaching through the catechism, the questions and answers that we're using with the confirmation class over these first six weeks in September and October. This week we turn to Jesus Christ. The Gospel reading comes from chapter 1, his first encounter with disciples. The next day John, that is John the Baptist, again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed to them, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which in Greek is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When Jesus saw Nathanael, Philip said to him first, come and see. And when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, Jesus said to him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. 
And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, we once again come before you and pray once again that that your holy word might be heard through these human words and that your word might take root and blossom in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The year was 1972. In case you didn't know, that was the first year that a digital watch appeared on the market. Atari had a new video game that came out that year called Pong. It was a year, as this community well knows, a year of Hurricane Agnes and of a strange but seemingly insignificant break-in in some offices called Watergate. In sports, Mark Spitz would win seven gold medals at the Olympics, but alas, the Phillies and Eagles would both finish in last place. On Broadway, there was a new show imported from London. The composer and lyricist would become rich and famous later, but they were young and relatively unknown at the time. The show was a peculiar and odd one because of the subject matter. There really had never been a Broadway show like this, but it's been revived at least twice since on Broadway, so even if you were not around in 1972, you may have heard this from the title song. Whatever you may think of the music or of the words, know this, they got the questions right. Who are you? What have you sacrificed? Do you think you are what they say you are? Next week we'll talk about the sacrifice, but this week our question is the first one from the chorus, who are you? Who is Jesus? For much of the past 2,000 years in the Western world, references to God have often been quite general, generalized abstractions. Long ago, Plato could talk about God as an idea, and Aristotle could speak of the unmoved mover. At the time of the founding of our country, many of the leading thinkers would talk about God and make an analogy of God as the clockmaker one who was around at the beginning and designed this wonderful creation, but then stepped back and let it just run. And we are a part of it, but God is apart from all this. Popular science fiction has used images, if you remember, of a mysterious stone floating in space or talked about a force that could be with you. In contrast, as Michael Linval puts it, Christians proclaim of God of scandalous 
specificity. Instead of an idea or an unmoved mover or a clockmaker or a force, God, Christians proclaim, is a person. A person born in a particular time and in a particular space or place. In Jesus of Nazareth, we encounter a God, not a distant God of armchair speculation. Rather, we come face to face with, with a God who speaks a word that we can comprehend. God is made known, we proclaim, not just in the words that Jesus spoke, but in his very being, in and through the living of his life, in the matter of his death and of his resurrection. Who are you, Judas asks, and Jesus Christ, superstar? Who is Jesus? First, look again at John 1 and listen again to the words of those first two disciples, Andrew and Philip. Andrew, as you just heard, is encouraged by John the Baptist to follow Jesus. And after spending time with Jesus and listening to him, he runs and grabs his brother Peter and says to him, We have found the Messiah. Or the Christ is what it is in Greek. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means the anointed. Then Philip does a similar thing. After he has spent time with Jesus, he runs and grabs Nathanael and tells him, we have found him about whom Moses and the law spoke and all the prophets. Who is Jesus? For Andrew, Jesus is his highest hope, the Messiah. God's anointed one, God's only son. And for Philip, Jesus is the one that the whole Old Testament has been talking about, the Messiah foreshadowed in Moses and in the prophets. But notice how even at the beginning, Jesus confounds the disciples. Nathanael at first can't believe that anything or anyone good can come out of Nazareth, much less the Messiah. And then, as the gospel unfolds, we will learn how Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that they've been expecting. He's not the king that will break the yoke of the Romans and lead Israel to prosperity and freedom. Instead, he is the one who has come to set all the world free from the yoke of sin. And the reign of God that Jesus comes to inaugurate is not marked by chariots and armies and military power but by a cross and an empty tomb and the power of love. Who is Jesus for us? He too is our highest hope, the one for whom our hearts long, the one who is the answer to the question over the ages, what is it you seek? But as one commentator writes on this encounter in John 1, how can we know what we seek until we have found it? Only if God has so made us that we have a sense of it and the longing of it before we actually possess it. Jesus is the answer to all of our questions, the antidote for all of our spiritual restlessness, even before we realize it, even before we've met him. But we can only say that if we keep this in mind. Like those first disciples, Jesus is always the one who confounds us and surprises us. 
Because our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Our ways are not God's ways. So the God we encounter in Jesus Christ is one that neither our thoughts or our imaginations, no matter how smart we are, can ever fully capture, nor can our language. Jesus is always capable of upsetting any preconceived notions we have. Jesus is always capable of surprising us and showing us something that is infinitely and wondrously better than we even expected. Who is Jesus? A second answer is found in Colossians 1 that Katie just read. He is the image of the invisible God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We can't see God, but we can see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see God. And yet, when we see Jesus, we don't just see God. Because Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Jesus is fully human in that he was born like we were. He grew hungry and got angry, just as we do. He wept. He laughed, as we do. He knew suffering and died, as we will know. He was tempted like we are, but unlike us, he never gave in to that temptation. A few years ago, Joan Osborne wondered in a popular song, what if Jesus was one of us? The answer is, he was and is. He is God with us, sharing in all that we suffer and experience, sharing in our sorrows and our joys. When we ask the question, where is God? One answer is always right here beside us. But we also proclaim this mysterious paradox, that while Jesus is fully human, he is also fully God. In other words, when he teaches, we hear God speaking. He speaks with an authority that no other teacher has. Other teachers and writers may have wisdom to share, to be sure, but none are as authoritative as Jesus. And when Jesus acts, we see God in action. So the matter of his life, his healing of the sick with compassion, his scandalous at the time welcoming of outcasts and sinners, his other impatience with hypocrisy, his readiness to give of himself totally to others, that describes the very nature of God. When we ask, what is God like? The best answer is always, Look at and listen to Jesus. Fully God and fully human, admittedly it is hard to hold on to that paradoxical idea. As Kathleen Norris writes, one part of the church sometimes places emphasis on the divine at the expense of the human. So Jesus becomes sort of this ethereal authority figure who is up there, Powerful, godlike, but remote from our human life and experience. But sometimes other parts of the church will speak of Jesus as being merely human. To be sure, a great teacher, a rabbi, and so forth. But he comes across as more of a superior social worker or spiritual guru. What we believe is that Jesus is both 
that it all holds together. As we will shortly say in the catechism that the confirmands are following this year, although he was truly human, when Jesus spoke, he spoke with God's authority. When he acted, he acted with God's power. Who are you, Jesus? There's a third answer we can give, one that's revealed in the verb tense that Paul uses in that letter to the Colossians. Do you remember it? He is the image of the invisible God. Present tense. Because Jesus is the living one. Jesus is a nearly, nearly universally respected figure. I don't know if you know that, but for Muslim, Muslims, he is one of the five great messengers or prophets. The Quran mentions his birth and ministry. It even mentions miracles of Jesus that are not in our Gospels. For instance, it mentions a time when the infant Jesus, the baby Jesus, is able to speak to the crowd and explain the virgin birth to them and to explain that Mary indeed is not an adulteress, the baby. Jesus is an inspiring figure. For most Jews, Jesus is a respected and popular first century rabbi. For historians, Jesus is the founder of the Christian religion. For those who call themselves spiritual but not religious, Jesus is an inspiring figure, perhaps, a great teacher, a great model. But pay attention. Here's the thing. For all non-Christians, no matter how well they think of Jesus, this is true. He's dead. What can be known about him is, the, is what can be known about any figure who lived in the past. That is, we study what he said and did, and that's it. End of story. But for Christians, Jesus is not just risen, he is alive. He is not dead. To be sure, the Bible, written in the past, is our chief and most authoritative witness to Jesus Christ about what he did and about what he said. But we don't just read the Bible as a past record, like we read other history books describing what happened back then to other people. No, we read the Bible in the present tense. What Jesus says to Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel in John 1 may be what he is saying to you and to me right now, right here. Jesus is alive, which means that we also learn about Jesus together through the body of Christ, what Jesus refers to in the Bible as my body, you. The church is not an organization like any other human organization because this uniquely is Jesus' body. Not perfect, far from it, but still Jesus' body. Jesus is uniquely present in and through the community of faith in a way that Jesus is not present in any other human organization. If you want to be a Christian, being part of a community of faith is essential. That's just the way that God made it. When Jesus said, be part of my body. 
To fully learn about then Jesus, to learn from Jesus, we need to do it together when others can help us to hear and see what we might not otherwise hear or see. But to say that Jesus is the body, that this is the body of Christ is not to say that Jesus is just here. Because remember, Jesus also promises to meet us out there. That when we encounter the least of these, the naked, the prisoner, the poor, the hungry, we encounter Jesus. He promises to show up there. Jesus is alive not just in the memory of loved ones, not just in the memory of his disciples, not just in the sense that his teachings are still taught or his life is still described as an example for us all. No, Jesus is alive, we believe and proclaim in the sense of an ongoing presence in the lives of those who seek to be disciples. And here is the strange part, the part you could not make up, that Jesus has chosen to work in and through us now to be Christ for the world. Jesus is alive, which means the story has not ended not yet been completed. Instead, he says to each one of us what he says to those disciples in John 1. Come and see. Come and spend time with me. And follow me. Go with me. Go where I'm going. Donald McCullough recalls his first few nights in Edinburgh Scotland, when he was a graduate student. One night he attended a concert and forgetting about Scottish weather, not having an umbrella, he came out and it was pouring rain, the streets were dark, and he took off running, because he didn't have any of that, and all of a sudden he realized he was lost. He had no idea where he was, and he says, I looked out and it was such a bad night, you couldn't even see a stray cat or muggers. So there was no one to ask, but then, out of nowhere, this strange man appeared, and so he came up to him and asked him if he could give him directions back to his apartment where he was living. And the man said, aye, and he gave him, you know, the three turns here, there, and over there. And then he looked at McCullough, and he could just see McCullough was so confused and so disoriented and not really able to follow all those directions. The man in the pouring rain said, ah, follow me. McCullough said, I followed him gratefully and blindly, trusting that he would lead me to where I needed to go. And he surely did. Who is Jesus? He is the one we have always been seeking, even when we didn't realize it. Who is Jesus? He is God with us. The living one who invites us all to come and see, to follow me. He's the one who doesn't just get us, give us directions. He leads us to where we need to go. And when we trust in him and follow him, even in the midst of the dark and rain, he will bring us home.
Thanks be to God. Amen.